Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Eric Kirschenbaum will join us to discuss the Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, life almost certainly exists elsewhere in the universe, but how would we exactly know that we're encountering life should it visit us? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Eric Kirschenbaum. Dr. Kirschenbaum is a zoologist, college lecturer, and fellow at Gritton College at the University of Cambridge. He has done extensive field work on animal communication. He's a member of the International Board of Advisors for Medi.org, which is a think tank on the topic of messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. He has penned the new book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy animals on earth reveal about aliens and ourselves. Dr. Kirschenbaum, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's what we can learn about life on earth and what it would tell us about aliens. Interesting topic. Why did you decide to put this book together? Well, when you study life on earth and, and when you look at life on earth and, and see its diversity and see all of the different characteristics that animals and plants have on earth, what's really interesting, what's really interesting to, to a zoologist is why they have these these properties, why animals are the way they are, why they behave the way they do, why they look the way they do. And it's those mechanisms that are really the fundamental goal of, of our research and of our, our inquiry. So understanding the mechanisms brings you pretty quickly to a realization that the mechanisms are very general. These are very broadly applicable mechanisms, evolutionary mechanisms, of oftentimes with a strong mathematical basis about when a particular characteristic is advantageous or not. And these mechanisms seem to be very broadly applicable, very universal. There's nothing Earth-like about them at all. So these mechanisms are almost certainly taking place on other planets as well. Certainly have different types of environments conducive to silicon-based life. Would the same kind of rules apply to these different types of environments or just generalized regardless? Well, obviously, a lot of, of what life is like is because of the, the specifics of, of the environment. But there is an underlying set of, of traits that, that are very general, that are independent of biochemistry itself, or even of whether there's silicon or some other basis to, to the chemistry. And that's because they are really based on, on quite simple principles of, for instance, competition and cooperation, when to compete, when to cooperate. These kinds of, of ideas that drive the behavior and the evolution of the behavior of animals on Earth have nothing to do with what those animals are made of. It's to do with uh, laws of game theory, with principles of, of evolution and how evolution works, which is, of course, independent of, of the actual underlying biochemistry. In some ways, this kind of gets at the root of asking the question of just exactly what is life? Defining life is an interesting exercise. Uh, it, it is important to understand life. It's difficult to get a, a firm definition of life, but there are some things that we know that life will possess. For one thing, 
life has to use energy. Life uses energy uh, to stay alive, actually, but to keep itself out of equilibrium with the environment. So if you're just a rock sitting around and, and being the same as everything else around you, you're not alive. But life maintains this, this disequilibrium from the environment, and it needs energy to do that. And when you need energy, that really places a lot of constraints on you because there's not the amount of energy available is not unlimited. You end up actually competing with other life forms for that energy. So some features of life that arise automatically from, from its very nature, you would expect life to be energy consuming and you would expect it also to be competing. What are there other principles that look for if we're looking for in other environments? Well, the current search for extraterrestrial life is chemical because that's our ability. That, that, that's, that's what we can do. We can probe the atmospheres of, of exoplanets and, and see what kinds of chemicals are present in those atmospheres and try to infer from that what chemical processes are going on and, and possibly biological processes as well. And when you see something like, like phosphine in the atmosphere of, of Venus that you don't have a, a physical explanation for, then you start to think, well, maybe this is a, this is a biological um, a biological process. So a lot of what we do is in looking for life is, of course, chemistry. But when it comes to describing how an ecosystem will work, how the different kinds of organisms in a particular environment on a particular planet will interact with each other, that's then beyond the realm of, of chemistry. For that, we need to we need to start looking into evolutionary biology. Looking at animals on Earth, different environments they're in, what can these animals on Earth tell us about life across the universe, potentially? There are really two different directions that this can go. The, when you look at life on Earth, you can see an awful lot of traits and characteristics that are constrained by the laws of physics. How you fly, how you swim, uh, even how you move on the ground. The, these are very clearly tightly constrained by the laws of mechanics and, and of aerodynamics. Those laws don't change. Those laws will be the same on any planet. And so if we have uh, multiple different types of creatures that fly with wings, there will be creatures that fly with wings on other planets because there just aren't that many ways, different ways to fly. The other direction is to think about the behavioral constraints on animals. And this is, I think, where it gets um, even more interesting because you would expect individual organisms to begin to associate with each other, to cooperate, to come together to help find food or to protect themselves from, from becoming food. And it's that behavior and particularly social behavior that's going to drive a lot of the things that we associate as being characteristic animal features on earth. And those same features that have arisen as the result of, of these behaviors, we're going to see on, on other planets as well. A lot of animals have to have some way of communicating with one another. On Earth, all animals communicate in, in some way or another because almost all animals on Earth have to find a mate to, to reproduce. And we know that reproduction is essential for evolution. Without reproduction, there would be no evolution and, and complex life would not come into existence in the first place. So communication seems to be very, very widespread on Earth. And of course, the moment that you start grouping into into groups of animals at the moment that animals begin to come together and cooperate whether it's just a pair of, of of animals raising some offspring or whether it's a herd of a of a million wildebeest then communication becomes even more important because you have to identify yourself you have to identify your needs 
You have to identify your social status. And the requirements on communication become much more than just I'm here and, and, and come and mate with me or, or stay away. This is my territory. Gathering of information perhaps about the environment or the other animal, that, that's really the, the key feature there. Yes, and, and the kind of information, of course, will depend to a large extent on, on the environment. But to a large extent, it's, it's also independent of the environment. It, it depends on, on the social structure. So in a group, it's, it's important to be able to identify yourself, or at the very least, to be able to identify yourself as a member of the group, um, because, because different groups are, are likely to, to be competing with each other. And then as, as the groups become more complex and the interactions between them become more and more complex, then all animals have some intelligence because all animals have to solve problems. That's what, what animals are. Animal, the very nature of animals, as opposed to plants, is that animals have to go out and find their food. They have to go out and find energy. And, and that's generally difficult. Um, it's, it's not easy to find energy. So all animals will have some form of intelligence. Now, there are, of course, on Earth animals that are that we would consider more intelligent and, and, and less intelligent. To those, it's quite difficult to quantify that. But certainly, there are animals that have to solve more difficult problems, and we tend to think of them as being as being more intelligent. And I think you, you would see a similar thing on on any alien planet: diversity of intelligences, a diversity of problems that needed to be solved. One of the interesting things about the history of life on Earth is that. Certainly over the last 300 million years, the ecosystem has been getting more and more complex. Life has been getting more and more diverse. And as it has done so, then the problems that, that animals face have been more and more complex. And so there does seem to have been a certain increase in intelligence or in, in the sort of maximum level of intelligence of, of organisms on Earth over this period. We don't know whether that's a universal trend. That, that may or may not be the case, but it seems pretty likely that as an ecosystem becomes more complex, the problems you face become more complex, and so you, you need to evolve a greater intelligence to deal with them. Intelligence can create other intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence. Is it destiny that we just have a universe full of bots? We certainly seem to be on the verge of being able to create very intelligent, artificial intelligence, and, and, and so artificial life. I say on the verge, maybe 100 years, maybe 200 years from now. And some people have speculated that this means, since we found it relatively easy so far, that other civilizations will have done the same. And that, in fact, if we do ever go out and look on other planets, then what we'll find is artificial life rather than biological life, in some way superior to biological life. That doesn't seem to be our observation at the moment. We don't see uh, super intelligent robot spaceships flying around through through the air all the time. So we're not quite sure why, if artificial intelligence is so great, uh, why it hasn't taken over the universe yet. But that's just a, a, another one of these mysteries that we hope to solve as we find out more about life in the galaxy. A lot of your research is focused on the types of languages that might be used. What would constitute a recognizable language? Language is, is, is pretty hard to define exactly what a language is. We are fairly confident that on Earth we're the only species that has a true language. But of course, there's only one species of us. So it's a little bit meaningless to say that, that what we have is, is language and everything else by definition isn't. But it does seem that humans have the ability to convey an unlimited number of concepts with a, with a finite language. And that's pretty remarkable. So no animal could, could do that. And, and it seems 
at least a reasonable suggestion that any alien life form that was capable of building technology that would allow it to contact us or, or to come visit us, radio telescopes and spaceships and so on, that they would have to have something similar, some kind of language like ours, something that was capable of, of conveying that much information from one individual to another. And then the question is, would we be able to recognize that? Would we know that it's a language? Would we be able to decode it? These are questions that are currently being researched by a lot of SETI researchers as well, and not just animal communication researchers, but, but also people who, who spend their lives looking for, uh, for signals from outer space. Are, are there any animals, any species that just sort of surprise you? How could this exist? And what, what does it really tell us about ourselves and, and the possibility of life elsewhere? Well, not, not really, no, because if you come across a, a, an animal and, and, and you say, oh my, why, why does that exist? Then what you're really saying is what gives this animal its advantage? What, what is it about these strange features, whatever it is, I, I don't know, first people to, first Europeans to see kangaroos, for instance, might think, well, well that, that seems so unlikely. Uh, but of course, the correct question is, why do they go around like this? And, and so it's not that they seem unlikely, it's that they have some kind of a very particular pressure on them, some kind of very particular problem they need to solve, or some particular way of getting getting food or, or, or getting shelter that, that is driving them to have a very specific adaptation. And that's that's really the, the, the correct way to approach weird and wonderful, weird and wonderful animals that are, that are not weird and wonderful because they're here. Well, what do you think the possibility is that we might be able to discover life, but potentially intelligent life out there? I think it, the, the possibility of discovering life is is high. I think we, we understand now that the number of planets in, in this galaxy is is astronomical, billions, billions of, of, of planets. And that in itself is, isn't enough. But the other thing that we understood now is that we're starting to invent technologies that can probe these planets, that we can look into their atmospheres, we can start to see what kinds of chemicals are in their atmospheres, what chemical processes are going on, and we're learning more and more and more about these, these exoplanets. So it doesn't seem to be unreasonable that within a relatively short time, a few small decades, I, I would have thought, we should have some evidence of life elsewhere in the galaxy. The chances of finding intelligent life, or rather technological life, when I say people talk about intelligent aliens, they really mean aliens with, with a technology that could contact us. That's a lot more problematic. We don't really have a way of quantifying how likely that is. Uh, there's the famous Drake equation uh, for which essentially all the parameters are unknown. The, the only thing we really know now, and only just recently, is how many planets there are in, in the galaxy. And even that we're still quite unsure of. So, so it, it's a Big question. It's a big open question. Well, reading this book, what would you like them to take home regarding life on Earth and life out in the universe? I think everyone's interested in aliens. Everyone's interested in thinking of what life might be like on other planets. And, and it's very unlikely that we will ever get to see that life with our own eyes. But that life, that kind of diversity and complexity of life exists here on this planet. You can go out and you can you can look out of your window and, and you can see the the squirrels on the trees and the woodpeckers and the and and the, the the beetles and that diversity of life that's the essence of what alien life will be like. It won't look the same, but the essence of that diversity is is what we would find on another planet. And I, I think that's what that's what my take home message would be. We were just talking with Dr. Eric Kirschenbaum. He's the author of the new book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. 
what animals on Earth reveal about aliens and ourselves. Dr. Kirschenbaum, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It was great fun. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>